0: Hello and welcome to the taking note podcast so joseph we're we're here for our final episode of this series.
1: I know aren't we just it's it's been a it's been a mad thing
0: it's been quite quite the experience and a wonderful learning curve for
1: us both i think totally and a great and a great chance to connect with musicians some of whom we've known for ages and some of whom are kind of newer acquaintances in the world i suppose and Yeah, and a way to make a whole bunch of quite interesting music, I think, as well.
0: Absolutely. And a great way to to round off the series. We we invited in a great friend of ours, Annie Grace, who's an incredible all-round person, but actor, musician, singer, everything. So we'll listen back now to what we got up to with Annie in the studio in Glasgow.
2: Where's Annie Grace? <laughs> I'll be like in the middle of some fucking forest, <laughs> completely on my own. No Having idea. A great time, though. But you know, two or six yeah. continents. And I've navigated my way around the world by steeples, pretty much. That's how I know where I am. Yeah. But so putting that steeple behind me yeah. or in front of me, to the right of me, to the left of me. Yeah, Don't give me a map. Well. doesn't make any sense.
1: That would be handy finding the way back home for you as well, because the West End is like surveillance stee- by churches.
2: too yeah. many fucking steeples, man. <laughs> but that's wrong like, love- fucking
0: steeple. That's why I love maps so much, because you look at the thing and then you see the thing.
2: No. It makes a lot of I sense. I look at a map and go, <gasps> it doesn't, <laughs> it, it just swims in front of my eyes, yeah. it doesn't make any sense. So we're actually, we're going. Go we're, for a cup of tea. We're going do? on the recorder. <laughs> Excellent. We have begun, I think. Right, everybody tense up, as Phil Cunningham says. We're on. <laughs> Phil, you're not helping. Right, everybody tense up. Okay, oh, I wasn't tense before, but I am now. Yeah, there's nothing so more intimidating, is
0: there?
2: Yeah. I'm shit at recording, just to let you know. Oh, and I'll try not to swear. Talking of podcasts, have you ever, ever heard the the Blind Boy podcast? I love Blind Boy. Yeah, he, we I, about that. Anna Massey's just directed me towards the Blind Boy podcast. Mm-hmm. And. What I love about him is his naturalness.
1: Yeah, totally. He's just chatting away.
2: I I'm in awe. I want to meet him.
1: Yeah. I would love to meet him actually. I like mean he's, he's
2: just and his his podcast I've listened to three podcasts, but when you look down the episodes, <laughs> they're just this yeah. mad range totally. of subjects. Yeah. I mean have you listened to the one about Bosch, The Garden of Earthly Delights?
1: No. I've, <gasps> I've not listened for a few months, but like I listened well, would listen weekly before.
2: I but. highly recommend that one. Um, That's what I love about, you know, his uh, use of the vernacular, you yeah. know. Ah, jeez, fucking time, so fucking this and that, <laughs> fucking that, geez, you no, fucking, it's great. Yeah. Very natural. Totally. <gasps> right, is That that is done. That's, That's it. it. Podcast over. That was easy. <laughs> Let's
0: go home. <laughs> great. Um, so we're here in the studio with Annie Grace. Hello.
1: How are you doing?
2: Having kids, thank you. Good even though it's early on a Sunday morning absolutely my voice hasn't started working yet my
1: brain takes a we wee we to get going as on. does your mouth yes. <laughs> I know the problem it's good I'm good at the words I am it's fantastic <laughs> um, well it's really nice that you're here though it's, oh I'm um, so
2: I can't tell you I've been really um, looking forward to this actually we have pre-
1: to it Should we were talking about it last week
2: um, it's just you know, it's the chance to do something creative. Totally, and it's a wee bit different in yeah. terms of creating something. In mm-hmm. fact, it's a challenge. Yeah, and I have to profess to be slightly apprehensive because <laughs> it feels like the gauntlet's gone down. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. We have to, we have to create something. What <sighs> happens if you don't? If it's try the grant. <laughs> <laughs> that's it be positive, Annie. Be positive. Okay. Ask me what you will. So, Annie. Yes. Um, who are you and what do you do? <laughs> <laughs> who am straight,
1: I? Straight to the point. Gosh,
2: that's quite a deep deep <laughs> question. Answer it anyway. Who, am I? who you think? am I? I am Annie Grace. I am a actor musician or a musician actor, depending on the gig. I've managed to sail through life, not sail through life. I've managed to get away with it so far, but touch wood, you know. I keep, I keep doing stuff. Oh, I suppose I should say I'm, I'm from the Highlands, from Lochaber, from Fort William, and I started off playing the pipes when I was, I think I started learning when I was about eleven. That was a few years ago, obviously, and. I only started learning the pipes because my sister, Chris, played the pipes first. And um, she ended up getting into the middle pages of the Daily Record. <laughs> and I always remember seeing the paper. And uh, there was Chris standing on the ramparts of Edinburgh Castle. <laughs> With this, the outfit that we used to have to wear for competitions, geez, oh, when I think about it, it was the kilt and the the frilly shirt with the big sleeves, oh. and the velvet waistcoat. Oh. There's Chris standing on the ramparts of Edinburgh because that, that that was in the seventies, and not a lot of women played, apart mm. from Rona Lightfoot. Yeah, um, there was Chris standing on the ramparts of Edinburgh Castle because she was a great piper, Chris, and the 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 title was. Amazing Grace Hits the High Notes. And I remember, I think it was about 10, actually, and I remember looking at it and everybody was passing the newspapers round, isn't this wonderful, Chris, isn't And I thought, I'm having a bit of that. <laughs> and I went to my mum and I said, I want to learn to play the pipes as well. I didn't really. <laughs> I just wanted the attention that she was getting. And that's how it started. With the benefit of hindsight, I should have thought about it a bit more because I might have played the fiddle because I've always wanted to play the fiddle. Well, but I didn't. I could teach you. Could you? Yeah, we could. Right, that's it. That's us. We have witnesses. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I have got a fiddle, but I've lent it out actually to my nephew. But I do scrape away. But, you know, you end up being Jacqueline of all trades and mistress of none. So, yeah, the pipes was <coughs> the, the thing I started on and I misspent my youth going up and down this, the high streets of Fort William every Tuesday and Thursday with the Lachaber Junior Pipe Band. Then I came to Glasgow and I got involved in the folk scene. Mm-hmm. And I served my apprenticeship, going around all the pubs and clubs in Glasgow, played with various bands. The Gunsmoke Trio and Pedro was one. The Mighty Peely Wally Kaylee Band was another.
0: <laughs> was this all on the pipes then? Were you playing small pipes? I was playing... No,
2: I was playing... I think by the time I joined the Mighty Peely Wally Cayley Band, I was, I'd was i got the small pipes. Okay. But the Renaissance and small pipes hadn't quite started then, yeah. so I was kind of ahead of the game. But I'd met Hamish Moore by that point, so I knew about small pipes, but they weren't his pipes, they were another maker's. But the Gunsmoke Trio and Pedro was a busking band, I used to busk. And then Mighty Peely Wally Cayley Band, and then I joined the Iron Horse, and that was the start of the band, the proper band stuff and the touring and everything. And then... I'm giving you a whole biography yeah, here. Yeah, this, this is great. I'm great. really enjoying it. please <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> continue. But I was so green when I think about it. I remember going to Orkney Fork Festival for the first time and walking in and going, "Oh my god, there's a PA set up." And I remember Ross Kennedy, who was singing with us at the time, going, "Shut up!" Going, but there's they've put the PA. We don't have to carry anything. <laughs> 'Cause it was so used to carting gear around and yeah, just doing you know, and, the whole DIY yeah, yeah. stuff and doing the first festival and mm-hmm. being amazed that everything was set up for you. And I remember meeting Ray Fisher. <laughs> this shows show, you I'm like letting my age in here. But I remember Ray Fisher, Archie Fisher's sister, mm-hmm. fantastic character, God rest her. She had a tuner for her guitar. And we all gathered wow. round and went, Ooh, and it was one of those big bricks you know (laughs) we're like oh wow she went ah, I know uh, because people were still using tuning forks when I first started playing jeez oh I sound like an old crumbly don't (laughs) I and then basically just started touring and that was it Mm -hmm. and then started to branch into other instruments as well so I went from the big pipes to small pipes started to play the whistle And then over the years have just accumulated a canon of some weird and wonderful blowy, whistly things. I played a lot of Irish music when I first started out, Mm -hmm. because mostly all the sessions around Glasgow were Irish tunes. So I learned a lot of whistling techniques from people around the sessions. And then um, as Whistle became more popular, Mary Bergen, she was a big influence. Oh, she's fantastic. Isn't she? Yeah. And then your man whose name I've totally forgotten. This is gonna happen a lot throughout this podcast. Who's that lovely guy from Fluke? Brian Finnegan. Yeah. yeah. I learned a load of him mm-hmm. just listening to him playing. He's an amazing player, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, fantastic. And there's some great whistle players out there. But yeah, over the years just embracing stuff that comes along and, yeah. and just trying it out and yeah. I mean sometimes to the detriment of my Other instruments have been like, at the moment, it's the banjo that's taken over my life. Windsor. Windsor. Windsor, The banjo. (laughs) uh, Led to me by Anna Massey. I was in her flat one day and I said, I think, oh, I'd been teaching over in Vermont at a piping camp, and all the pipers in America at this camp, they were all playing banjo as well as pipes. (laughs) Just seems to be a thing. And I remember coming back home, and I think this was in 2018, maybe. Yeah, it must have been. And just happening to be in Anna Massa's kitchen one day and saying, I really want to learn the five-string banjo. And she went, oh, hold on. I think I might have one under my bed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and she went away. And she came back through with this beautiful antique banjo that some student had given to her. Mm-hmm. And it was made by one Arthur Octavius Windsor. And he's got the original vellum on him. Him. Because yeah. he's a person, you understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you have to realise that I live in my own, so Windsor and I have been communicating <laughs> during the pandemic. He was my only companion for a long time mm-hmm. when I was isolated. Anyway, so I've learned to play the banjo over the past... Well, I'd started to learn sort of from 2018, but I mean, I basically had to, like all of us, had to stop touring in 2000, yeah. you know, 2020. I had to come back from a tour of America in 2020, and I just picked up the banjo and I didn't stop playing, mm-hmm. and that was a great thing. It's you know, a lovely just feeling to have that,
0: that when you when you get an instrument and it's just like you literally can't put it down. It's, yeah. it's unlike anything
2: else, isn't it? Absolutely, when you get addicted to it. But it yeah. meant that the the dust on the pipes got thicker and thicker. Yeah. Christ, <laughs> time I get back to you, my fingers are going to be like chipolata sausages. <laughs> <it has laughs> absolutely we've, we've rubbish.
1: All, <laughs> we've all had that. How how did acting and getting into that world come about for you?
2: That's I mean, a very from, good question.
1: From because I gather it was kind of musicianing came first. Mm-hmm. That was that was always there. Yeah. Um, so how how was that? How did that happen?
2: Well, I decided I was going to leave the band. I'd been with Iron Horse for twelve years, mm-hmm. and I'd I think I'd just got wee, I just got fed up with it. To be honest, I wanted to do something different, but I didn't know what, mm-hmm. and. We made this decision to retire the band. Uh, That was in 2000, I think. And I didn't know what was going to do. I just remember it's funny. I said to the the band members, I think I have to leave. I have to leave and I have to do something else. And Roy, the guitarist, went, well, it's funny you should say that because I want to go to Spain to where my girlfriend is and Beard uh, Brian McAlpin, the keyboard player, went. Well, actually, I was thinking, and it was just a sort of domino effect. Yeah, a bit of a. You know, I was, yeah. I was the catalyst, but in actual fact, we'd we'd been at it. I'd been at it for twelve years. We'd all just, I think, we just had enough, and the band had been very successful, mm-hmm, and we'd mm-hmm. done lots of lovely shows and made lots of albums and toured the world and blah blah blah. But that was it, and then from that, I was at home going fuck's sake, maybe that was a bit impetuous. <laughs> <laughs> what are we going to do now? Yeah. And I remember Beardy came in one day and he said, um, oh, there's a there's something happening up at the Inverness with the Highland Festival. Uh, they're going to be doing this this play. And I, Alistair Madon, the director, asked me if I wanted to audition for it. And of course, my ears are like that. Big
1: mm-hmm.
2: audition. Because I'd always thought I would love to have a stab at acting. Mm-hmm. I didn't go to much theatre. I'll be honest, but I would watch films, and I'd go. Oh no, I wouldn't say it that way. I, maybe the character would think about things, and I was always analysing yeah. roles on on screen. And uh, and I said to Beardy, "Well, is there are they looking for anybody else?" He said, "Well, why not phone up Alston McDonald and ask?" And thankfully, I had this man's number in my phone. <laughs> so I phoned up Alistair MacDonald and basically invited myself up to an edition for a show called The Accidental Death of an Accordionist. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Long story short, two editions later, I landed the plum role of Gene Robertson. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. I was absolutely clueless. Now, I would not have called myself an actor at that point. Mm-hmm. Absolutely clueless. But that was a steep learning curve. This was a an interactive uh Kayleigh Who Done It promenade type show. Yeah. It was absolutely brilliant and it was a massive hit on the West Coast.
1: Totally. It's that it, like, kind of like...
2: It was kind of the stuff of legends. Yeah, it was yeah. like it was the next biggest thing after the Chibi at the stag and the black black oil. Yeah, People totally. absolutely loved yeah, it yeah. because kind of... it was all about a community. Um, And it was a fictitious village called Glen Gurney and I played the tourist officer wearing Mm -hmm. my mum's old tweed suit. Brilliant. (laughs) And I was called Jean Robertson and I spoke like that. And I liked the men. I would go up to the men as they were coming in. I'd go, hello, are you on your own? (laughs) These guys would go, and the wives would go, no. (laughs) Because they didn't know if it was real or not. It was brilliant. Anyway, that was my first... That was my first taste of theatre. Yeah. But this woman came up to me. um, We took it to the festival and we were working. Oh, God, we were working in a distillery just outside Edinburgh. It's totally gone. Glen Mm Kinchy. And this woman came up to me and she said, darling, do you have an agent? I went, no. (laughs) She said, well, darling, you need an agent. And this was a woman called Pat Lovett, who was the top agent in Scotland. She said, Darling, just call me. Call me, darling. And that's how she spoke. God love her. <laughs> Pat, call me after um, the fringes finished. And darling, remind me who you are because I'll forget. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <a> <laughs> oh, okay. So I, I had it, I crossed it every day in the diary. Out this because mm. this was a big thing. Yeah, this oh, woman totally, yeah. and I phoned this woman up when the fringe was finished at the end of August. I said, "Hello, this is Annie Grace." I don't know if you'll remember me. She said, "Darling, of course I do." <laughs> and that was it. Yeah, she wanted to be my agent, so she saw something in me, and that was the start of my acting career. That saw me just being blessed with shows. I was kept busy again because. I had a skill set mm-hmm. that other actors didn't necessarily have. So when people find out I could play pipes and I could sing and I could do the whistle, I could this, that, the next thing, I got jobs. Yeah. And, and that was the start of my apprenticeship, which I'm still serving. So when I call myself an actor, I'm more of a musician. I'm an apprentice actor still. Mm. <laughs> and I probably will be until the day I die, you know, because there's things I've not done and that's where you you think oh, i've not i've not done enough shakespeare i've only ever done one shakespeare Yeah. you know and i'd like to do more classics and i'd like to i'd love to go in a i just love to do more roles that are actually just straight acting roles but i very often i get the musician actor role mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. i'm i'm happier i'm happy in whatever yeah yeah but i yeah. love it if people give me a role based on my ability as a, as an actor yeah, not absolutely. as a musician
0: Have you done lots of work abroad then?
2: I have, I I, (laughs) I, I have. I've been very fortunate. You know, six continents I've done. The one left hasn't got any gigs at it. Is
0: that Antarctica?
2: Yes.
0: (laughs) 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 We'll see about it. Maybe we can do something. Yeah,
2: get a gig and that'll be, tick them all off. Exactly. So, no, I have. I've travelled throughout the world doing various weird and wonderful shows. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, it's just extraordinary being in a show in Broadway, you know. Yeah. It's like, it's like no other experience can top it. To be honest, you're like, oh, look <laughs> at me, <laughs> see what <where> I am. <laughs> I mean, I've done from Uzbekistan to Dumfries, you know, <laughs> bizarre. And when pandemic hit, I was actually on a tour in the States, and we still had six weeks to go. We'd got as far. As we'd done L.A. And we'd done San Francisco and that was it. Right. Home you go. Mm. Yeah.
1: Was that the Sting
2: Show? That was the Sting Show. <laughs> the last ship. Wow. Yeah, it was a bit wow. That, that that's one of those that's one of those experiences that you you go, Oh my god. Maybe I am quite good, you know. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. When you're on a stage with Sting, that was a special mm-hmm. time. I've toured with him twice now.
1: And you were kind of with that show from at the beginning though you were
2: the I youth, was yeah, yeah I was I did uh, what's known as R&D research and development mm-hmm. work the R&D was done at the Sage uh, at Newcastle yeah I think that was in 2017 first time I met the Sting himself and that was a week long R&D process with, I think there was 12 of us just working through things and very high end, you know there's lots of sponsors, there's lots of money, there's producers, there's people coming in and out Mm -hmm. all the time
0: Mm -hmm. Do you find that stressful in that
1: environment? Yes
2: but all of us did
1: Yeah, That's like proper commercial commercial theatre, especially
2: when you know, at the head of it, you've got Sting, who's a living legend and you know, when we walked into the, when he first walked into the room I mean, I have to be honest, I think a little bit of pee came out. (laughs) (laughs) You cannot, you go, he's here, he's in the room, oh my actual God. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realise that that first week was a running edition. Wow. Throughout that, nobody told me that. My pal the Campbell, the director, had phoned me up and said, hi, we've got this thing happening. Um, He was the director, the artistic director of... uh, Newcastle Mm -hmm. uh, Theatre at the time and he said, we've got this thing happening, we want to direct, sort of redo, revamp this show that Sting's already done and I've rewritten the book and will you come along and bring your blowing squeezy bag things, that's Mm -hmm. all he said. (laughs) Anyway, that that week we just went through the script and I was being evaluated the whole time but I didn't know that. Nobody told me that. It's kind of better then, in some ways. <laughs> it was, yeah. Because yeah. I think there was only about three of us that made it through the actual... From the 12 that were there, got asked to then come back to the first tour of the show that didn't feature Sting. We had Joe McGann playing his role, and then subsequently we did that, an English tour. Then we did a tour, and uh, we stayed in Toronto for six weeks where Sting was in the actual show, and then we did an American tour with Sting yeah. in the show. And then it turns out that... Sting's just your your average Joe average. Mm-hmm, Doesn't mm-hmm. travel with an entourage. He's got an assistant, Teresa, who's very nice, but there's absolutely no, there's no frills to him. He's really down-to-earth, genuine, lovely man yeah, yeah. who I still stay in touch with, Yeah, you know. I, and when the pandemic hit and I had to come home and I found myself thinking, well... If that was my swan song on the the stage, that's quite a good one to go out with. Totally, yeah. When you've got a creative head, I don't know about you guys, it's constant. Mm -hmm. It's like a washing machine just going round and round and round and round and round round all the time with ideas. Yeah. You know? And that's exhausting. Yeah. That's really tiring sometimes. And sometimes I'll just think, no, I'm not going to play and I'm not going, I'm just going, but I write. I do write a lot, but not in a structured way. When I die, and it will happen, you know, (laughs) it's going to happen. I've actually charged my daughter with this responsibility because secreted around the house are thousands of notebooks and contained within these notebooks are poems, short stories, little ditties, musings, thoughts. And some of them are quite good. There's also little tune books lying around and there's, mm-hmm. there's various recordings and things that I've done, but it's not in a, I'm not even very organised, they're not all in a neat folder on the computer, mm-hmm. you know. My creative bent comes when I work with other people, I think, and I tend to feed off other people like a leech, you know, suck the suck <laughs> the creativeness out of them just you wait you're going to be hollow husks by the time this afternoon <laughs> is finished i'll be eating all your ideas no you I, uh, myself.
0: I actually know exactly what you mean i'm, I'm But you know it's it.
2: like i i just am i i am a creative person and i content myself with that and i'd love to be able to get up in the morning and and, and have a structure but what happens with me is if i know i've got a project happening Or if I'm in in a project, that gets my attention. I am 110% involved in that. I eat, sleep, breathe that project, and then that project's done, and I'll put it down, and I'll move on, and I'll have a wee break. And then the next project, will come along, and that's how I work. Everybody's different. Everybody's got their own way of being creatively, but thank God for being creative. You know, and I'm glad I've got this mad head that shoots all over the place because it keeps me it keeps me occupied. It keeps me stimulated. Absolutely. You know?
0: Who or what are some of your, your bigger creative inspirations or have been through your life?
2: You know, that's a difficult question because throughout my life, with every decade, there's been different inspirations. Yeah. You know, I'd like to say that when I first started piping, John D. Burgess was an inspiration. Mm-hmm. And then when I moved from that, it was Donald McLeod was an inspiration. And then the Corrie's became an inspiration. In yeah. fact, I learned my first whistle tune off a Corrie's album. Mm-hmm. And then when I came to art school, you know, De Danon yeah became an inspiration. And then the Moving Hearts became an inspiration. And then, you know, I started going to gigs and whoever I saw inspired me. Anna Lennox inspired me. And this, it changes all the time. It's a constant cycle of of learning and listening and watching. And and where I am at the moment, I suppose my latest inspiration is watching somebody like Sting, who is every pore, just oozes creativity. He's never far from a guitar, yeah. you know? And he's somebody that I really aspire to be like. Mm-hmm, he's mm-hmm. an early worm. He gets up he meditates, he does his big walks, that, that I'm doing big walks now, and that's great for clearing my head. But um, being on tour with somebody like that, who's a living legend for a reason, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you realise that his his work ethic is like something. It's, it's way beyond anything I could ever yeah. achieve. You'd pass his dressing room and you would hear him just playing his guitar, trying out, he's always writing songs, he's always writing lyrics, he's always... Reading books. I remember giving him a book once. What was it? His Bloody Project. Have you read that? That's a
1: tremendous book.
2: Isn't it great? That's so good. Um, Graham Burnett McRae. Yeah. So we were having this blether one day about books. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's an ex-English teacher, so he loves to read. Yeah. So I give him Graham Burnett McRae and he looks mm. at it and he goes, oh, I've read it. <laughs> I went you're fucking joking yeah. <laughs> he went yeah I like to read but I'll read it again he said wow. <laughs> I thought wow you've just blown my mind That's yeah. fantastic. and then I phoned my cousin's partner she runs Saraban Books, Sarah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, do you know? So I phoned Sarah up and I said, you're not going to believe who's just, who's read. And she was so excited to know <laughs> that Sting had read his bloody project. And it, she phoned up Graham yeah. Burnett McRae and told him about it. Oh, so yeah, I, th- I mean, that's the latest inspiration is hanging out with somebody like that. And you you realise, yeah, I've got an awful lot more work to do.
1: So, Annie, I guess talking about, you know, inspirations and things like that, I, I think you've you've brought someone for us to look at in terms of music and stuff today, Willie Souter.
2: Yeah, Willie Souter. Willie Souter is a Scottish poet. He's not well known enough. Mm-hmm. He's well known, but I think he's underrated. Okay. And I learned off Willie Souter through Jimmy McGregor. Do you remember Jimmy McGregor? Oh my God. So Jimmy McGregor was part of a duo called Jimmy McGregor and Robin Hall. And they were a duo that were responsible for helping the renaissance of the folk, folk music generally, Mm -hmm. in the 60s. And they had their own show on the BBC, I think. I think it was in the 60s, actually. And... uh, Then I think there was like three million people used to tune into their tea time show. Wow. And they did a whole big world folk sort of programme. So they Mm -hmm. brought calypsos to the audience's attention as well as Scottish folk music and English folk music, blah, blah, blah. And then Jimmy went on to present MacGregor's Gathering, which was a, a Radio Scotland show, which was, it was a general gathering of, Writing, art, music, chit-chat, environmental stuff. And Jimmy also had a TV show where he used to take walks around all the hills around Scotland. Anyway, he's a fantastic guy. And I got to know Jimmy through just playing in the scene and getting to know him. And uh, then I ended up playing with him. And Jimmy's now 92, I think. Still fit as a fiddle. Mm-hmm. Still plays. Wow. And he was the one that introduced me to Willie Souter. He's been a massive fan of Willie Souter. And Willie Souter was a poet who was born in 1898 and he died in... When did we say he died?
1: Was it 43?
2: So he was 45. Yeah. Yeah. And he, for the last 14 years of his life, was bedridden. He had a thing called ankylosing spondylitis. I'm probably pronouncing it very badly but it's it's basically a fusing of the spine and he contracted that from food poisoning wow when he was he was he would join the navy when he was I think he was 18 or 19 and he uh, he got sick during his two years at sea came back from sea went to university at Perth, in Edinburgh sorry, but his health was starting to deteriorate and they thought he had rheumatism or rheumatoid arthritis or something Mm -hmm. and then laterally Mm -hmm. he stayed in his bed for 14 years can you imagine? And he was looked after by his devoted parents and he was a poet, he had always written from a very early age he'd written but when he was in when he was bedridden, that was when his world actually opened up to him because he had nothing to do but read. And in Perth, they have the Willie Suter house. You can go and visit where he was born and and died. And his parents were devoted to him and they looked after him and he spent his time in this special room that his dad, who was a, a joiner um, of note, a very well-respected uh, joiner, he created a room where there was there was these shutters that opened with window uh, mirrors on the back of them, so that he, they could angle them so that he they, he could see out into the garden, or he could see what visitors were coming in mm-hmm. to visit. Mm-hmm. Which imagine if you're stuck in your bed, and you've got Mrs McPhee from the parish coming to visit you every day, with good intention but no chat. Yeah. He's he's written so much Willie Suter. but he also wrote when he realized that he was he was he was dying. He he wrote a book. He he kept journals all the time. He had a sleep journal, he had a day journal for who came to visit and then he latterly kept things uh, notes on how it was to be dying, and it's called Diaries of a dying man and he logged everybody that came to see him and some <laughs> I mean some of the folk that came to see him he had no escape. this poor man stuck in his bed, listening to the neighbor from three doors down talking about you know his hedge growing or his whatever mm-hmm. boring stuff that really didn't interest him, but he also had visits from the likes of Hugh McDermott mm-hmm. and other writers, you know, other creatives came to visit. He wrote in English, but he loved writing in Scots. What I, what I loved about Willie Souter was I've, I've taught a lot in schools and I've taught young kids in schools and there's not enough Scottish songs in, in Scots for kids. Mm-hmm. You know, Scott, Scots is hard, <laughs> <laughs> Scots is a hard language if you if you don't speak it. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And and you know Burns is too dense for for kids to understand. But Willie Souter wrote Bairn songs. because mum and his dad adopted uh, a wee lassie. Oh, I've forgotten her name now. Um, when she was seven, and to keep her amused, he would write these ditties mm-hmm. in Scots, and. Well, they were always environmentally uh, aware because he you have to remember he was lying in his bed and all he could see was the garden. So he would watch the movement of a beetle for half a day. would watch the progress and that beetle would take on a character. Or he would watch a bumblebee and that bumblebee... This would become... You know, he had a microscopic eye for detail. So he wrote... His Bairnsangs are all about the moon or the weather or animals or insects or, you know, and characters as well. I think very often he would base his characters on the people that came to visit him. He was an incredibly well-read man. You know, he would read everything from Russian literature to Japanese fables and legends. So I found him fascinating. And also, he was a hugely compassionate man, very um, kind his, fa- his family were very Christian, you know, uh, and, and so he based all his values on being kind and good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and that comes across very often in his writing, yeah. you know. So that's Willie Souter. And I, I love his, there's so many unfamiliar words in his poetry. I always have to look up the glossary all yeah, over the time. So what I thought we might be able to do is create something from a Willie Souter poem.
1: Yeah. That sounds great. Do you
2: think? Sounds yeah, good. Absolutely. Now, this is no... You don't know what I have planned, which is really no. interesting. Mm-hmm. Shall quite, I give you an idea exciting. of what I've...
1: Yeah, yeah, that right. sounds like a plan.
2: So, I have this book here. Um, as you can see, it's got lots and lots and lots it's and lots, lots of...
0: post-it notes.
2: Post-it notes stuck in it. Because I've read quite a lot of Willie Souter. It's been really difficult to try and pick a poem that we could create something out of. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm right. going to start with this one which is called Dottie's Devotion. Which is so simple. Some of his some of his writing is really simple. Um, and this one jumped out at me and I, I kind of put a melody to it and I always heard I always heard it as being a a, a string part in it somewhere. Keep me will. And keep me, and keep me bright and bonny. Be day and be next, and be candlelight. I just had this little idea pop into my head. I wonder if there isn't a little reading yeah,
1: to be yeah, had, I actually,
2: over. That little improv and, and on, on the top yeah 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 and then the a... Dottie's devotion come in over what, the top what, that. That was... so I'm looking here at the Diaries of a dying man by William Souter and every day he wrote something in his diary of how life was for him mm-hmm. and it was it was about art was it June Oh yeah here we go Monday the 29th
1: that was like only a few days ago. What's
2: it, the 11th of July now? Um, why don't you just play something and I'll see how it sounds? Sounds yeah. great. Should we try doing this and then just trying to repeat what we just did? Or... That's what I was imagining. Yeah, did... yeah. Diaries of a Dying Man, Monday the 29th. <laughs> some new experience, a new richness is needed in my life to bring my poetry to fullness. I suppose this means that there is something lacking in myself yet. Anyhow, I feel my responsibility to life more and more, and that life demands from a man something bigger than a handful of lyrics. My life's purpose is to write poetry, but behind the poetry must be the vision of a fresh revelation for men. If one cannot help men to find bread for the body, then the greater the obligation to give food for the mind. Art is for all, and the greatest art proves it. For the bogey money I me break and bonnie, be day and be next and be candlelight, and a wall be the boy.
1: liked the the kind of energy of it and you know how I think you can kind of feel the freshness of it to us in listening to it. You know it sounds it sounds like in the best possible way we're still we're finding our way with how we're playing it and how we're playing music together and things which is
2: Yeah. I I felt like how do I explain that? In that moment of creating that piece because that's the first time although I'd put a very basic melody to that, this is the first time that I've ever really played it with other people, you know? And you helped to take it someplace else. And I know that I felt myself singing different melody lines and doing vocally doing different things because I was getting carried along you have, on that you have tide of. To yourself,
0: don't you? Yeah, getting
2: yeah. going on that lovely creative wave and mm. just riding it, really. And going, okay, wear it but I think that's the thing, is when you're in that creation mode is is having that ability to just let go. Yeah. And for for that short period of time there, I just felt it was like a freedom. Mm-hmm. Do you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also the room kind of closed in. <laughs> Everything went all wavy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I was just watching you boys because we're in this very confined little area, watching Charlie, watching you, and you were curled over your piano like a creature. It's mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the only to do way that. to describe him—a six-foot-seven <laughs> creature mm-hmm. draped. You actually become one. You don't know where the piano ends and Joe Peach begins. <laughs> you noticed that? You're yeah. the same with yours. It was lovely. It was a lovely, lovely moment. I wish I wish the people listening could have watched that. Yeah. And I hope that people listening will go, yeah. go Google him. He mm-hmm. was an extraordinary man and his, his words are... He's written some fantastic things.
0: Yeah. Oh. And just, just before we sort of wrap up the whole thing here, mm-hmm. me and Joseph tend to try and get each of our guests to come up with a word to describe what we've done today. And the idea is that we then use that word to name
2: each episode. Alchemy, I think... You're alchemists. <laughs> Brilliant. Nice. It's just—it was magical.
1: Yeah.
2: You know, it's hard not to imagine what you might create, but this—this this was beyond what I thought we would create. If you know what I mean, mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. went further than that and reached musical points that yeah. was really exciting.
1: So a massive thank you to Annie Grace for joining us in the studio for what was um, the final instalment of the Taking Note podcast. Um, It was really great to spend the time with Annie and to make some music there. Over the course of our session with Annie, we had some really lovely conversation and some things that we couldn't quite fit into the body of the main episode. So for that, we've added a a second instalment, which is available in podcast feeds just now, just with us having some more... Nice chat with Annie. At the end of that episode, we also have a wee conversation with Owen and have a wee talk about how the process of making the podcast was and also kind of what Charlie and I's plans are for the future with it. As ever, a huge thank you to our funders, the Marcus Trust, Britain Piers Arts and Creative Scotland, as well as to Owen for producing the whole series. If you've liked what you've heard, please do tell your friends and recommend the podcast to others. Word of mouth is a great way to kind of spread the word about, uh, yeah, about the series and about about our music generally. Please do also consider um, supporting Charlie and I in the creation of future work by subscribing to us on Bandcamp. More information about what that entails and what what you may get from it is available on our website, cgjpmusic.com. So head on over to your podcast feed to check out the second part of this episode with Annie Grace, which is the final instalment of the first season of the Taking Note podcast. Bye for now.